0: Hey, welcome, everybody. This is the State of the CIO, where we talk with America's top IT leaders about the changing role of technology in the C-suite. I'm your host, Dan Kelly. Hey, everybody. Dan Kelly here with State of the CIO podcast. I've got Kim Wines with me today. She's the VP of Cloud Strategy at Flexera. Hey, Kim.
1: Hi, Dan. Glad to be back on State of the CIO.
0: Thank you. Yeah, it's great to have you. For all of our longtime listeners, Kim provides us an annual report, if you will, which is a high-level overview of the State of the Cloud report that Flexera puts out that Kim is in charge of. And Kim, I'm sure you'll tell listeners where to go find that for themselves if they want to read the whole report like I have up in front of me. But could you perhaps just, for those that maybe are listening to you for the first time, Kim, give a brief introduction, how you got into the space and personal background?
1: Sure. I've been in the enterprise software industry for multiple decades now, more years than I care to count. You know, I'm an engineer by training, but I've spent most of my career on the product management, product marketing and marketing side of the house, working in all sorts of areas of enterprise software, but probably for about the last 12 years in selling solutions that are bought by IT organizations. So working closely with CIOs and their teams and their reports.
0: That's awesome. And when was the first year the State of the Cloud report came out?
1: So this is the ninth year. So I believe 2012 was the first year. And it started out when I was working with RightScale. In the cloud management space, RightScale was acquired about two years ago now by Flexera and we've continued that annual report. And in fact, Flexera has now expanded and we did some additional reports last year. We did a state of tech spend report, which was well read, and then also a CIO priorities report. So you can find those all on the flexera.com website. You can look under resources for white papers and get access to any of those reports.
0: Awesome. Let's jump right into the content because I know you're a wealth of knowledge in this space for obvious reasons, having been around since the inception of producing this report. During our conversation, I'd like to just touch on the highlights of the changes. Quite frankly, that's happened from 2019 to 2020. Obviously, we're all in the world of a global pandemic, which I'm sure is influencing the responses here as well. But before we even get into the content, could you remind people the difference between a public and a private cloud. And the reason I asked that, Kim, is like I talked to you about before we hit the record button is we still get a lot of those questions you know, from our clients just to reconfirm really the difference. So I would appreciate if you could provide that overview.
1: Yeah, that's great. So back uh, when cloud was just getting going, there was actually kind of a definition of cloud that came out from the National Institute of Standards, NIST, actually based here in Boulder, Colorado, where I live. And they kind of created the accepted definition of cloud, and it had several characteristics associated with that, which included things like the ability to access it over the internet and the ability to kind of leverage resources on demand, all the normal characteristics you think of when you think about public cloud. So those kind of got well understood. We all understand now how AWS and Azure and Google and all the other public cloud providers work. And then there came along this concept of, hey, I want a private cloud. I want the idea of public cloud, but I'm concerned about being in a public cloud. And so I want to do that. And the private cloud arose. And that's when things got a little muddy because there was a lot of cloud washing going on. And in fact, in the early days, AWS would state there's no such thing as hybrid cloud or a private cloud because it doesn't meet all the definitions. We've always been a little bit more loose and we've allowed people to define it as they choose. But in general, it means to have most of the characteristics of a public cloud, which is you know the ability to leverage resources on demand and billing based on it and leverage over the internet. Now, of course, if it's a private cloud, the reality is you had to pay for the data center and you have to pay for the hardware in the data center. And you might be billing it out to different parts of your organization, but you already have a sunk cost. So it doesn't have that perfect alignment. Now, what's happening today is even more interesting because in the early days of private cloud, we had things like OpenStack, which is an open source technology. We had things like people using VMware and kind of cloud washing it, putting some capabilities that are cloud-like on top of it, using that as their private cloud. Now what's happening is the public cloud providers have gotten in the game. So AWS has created Outpost. We've had Azure with Azure Stack. We've had Google with Anthos, where you can take the exact same technologies or a subset of the technologies that they run in their public data centers, and you can run those in a private data center. So again, you're still making an investment up front in that hardware, for example. You're still paying AWS or Azure or Google on top of that, but it gives you many of the similar technology capabilities that you would have. And those technologies, the kind of public cloud brought on-prem is super popular, we found in the report this year.
0: Does anyone use the term, because I use it, and it's probably completely wrong. So correct me. <laughs> I use the term like private cloud as a service almost and an as a service yeah. type of time frame. Is that accurate? I mean, that's kind of how I view it. It's just personal view
1: people don't use that term all that much, but it especially becomes important when you start to think about some of the cloud MSPs who are doing that, where they'll be like, hey, we'll create a private cloud for you. We'll put the hardware, we'll manage that, and then we'll provide you with access. And we may be also managing applications within that private cloud. So I think that would be you know, a reasonable term to use. If you're within an enterprise and you're standing up your own private cloud, which is honestly becoming more and more rare, then yeah, you could consider that, hey, we have a central team infrastructure or a cloud team that manages that private cloud and provides it out as a service to our business units. But really we've shifted over the last nine years. You know, private cloud was super hot six, seven years ago, really declined. Now I think it's sort of getting new life with these AWS outposts, the Azure Stacks and the Google Anthos.
0: Yeah, that's really fascinating. And how many clouds, private and public does an average company have? I assume it changes depending on what industry we're talking about, the size of company, etc. But maybe if you could just give an overview of what the baseline looks like in the industry so that the CIOs listening to this podcast can kind of rationalize their own infrastructure quickly in their head.
1: Yeah. I mean, today on average, companies, enterprises use 2.2 public clouds. So obviously we have 0.2 because it's an average. But if you think about it as two public clouds, and that's two different public cloud providers. So most companies will be using a primary. It's usually not a 50-50 split. They'll have a primary that might have 70 or 80% of their workloads. And then they'll have a secondary that's maybe 10 or 20%. But what's also interesting is as companies get more mature in their cloud use, they're more likely to add on that third cloud. And often the first two are AWS and Azure, not always, but often. We're seeing increasingly that the more mature people are adding Google into the mix as well. So that's typically the profile that we're seeing On the private cloud side, there's also an average of 2.2 private clouds. And that might look like my VMware environment with some added front-end stuff to make it more cloud-like, like like a self-service capability, for example. And then that might look like some of the tools that I'm experimenting with from the public cloud providers like Outpost or Azure Stack or Anthos. Or it might look like a third-party managed service provider that I'm getting a cloud from or it might look like a container platform that I'm running. So I could be running something like a OpenShift or a Pivotal on top of some on-premise hardware.
0: That was going to be my question right there, Kay. That was my my working assumption, purely a personal assumption based on working with our multinational clients. But Is the drive to expand clouds really focused on, let's call that container cloud, and I immediately drive to this R&D space where you want to spin up little proof of concepts here, there, and everywhere, which company like Google, that's what they want. That's their bread and butter, and all of them, quite frankly, right? But that's really where Google is trying to push itself.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think container is a big driver. You know, certainly things like AWS Outpost, which is showing a lot of interest, um, yeah. doesn't require you to use containers, you can be running VMs. And for many people, that's nice, because they don't have to do the conversion process to figure out how to containerize what they have. But you know, containers, we've been asking about containers... For probably six years in this report since they still got big. And if you look on the enterprise side, 66% of enterprises are using Docker. 63% now using Kubernetes. So it's really ubiquitous. Now it's not in their whole estate. It's often in a subset, although a growing subset of their estate. Then on top of that, we've got use of the AWS container services, the Azure container services, the Google container engine as well. So containers is here. It's ubiquitous and it's making further inroads into that footprint. So that's a big piece of it, certainly.
0: Okay. And could you speak to how organizations are managing these multiple cloud environments and what you've seen change between, let's call it 2019 to 2020, specifically on two sub-questions to that question, perhaps, before you answer. One is, are you seeing companies have data sharing between the clouds, public and private, as well as how are they hiring support, either in a managed service provider perspective? Are they building up a COE internally? Maybe two parts to that one question, if you could.
1: Yeah, so every year we get questions about this multi-cloud approach. And so this year we actually asked a question about what kind of architectures people are using. So the answer I always gave is what has borne out this year, which is often applications are siloed by cloud providers. So a lot of what's happening out there is I have app one, it's running on cloud provider A, and I've got app two and three running on cloud provider B, and never the two shall meet. But what we saw this year, and that still does happen a lot, but we saw this year that the most common multi-cloud architecture, I'll call it, is data integration. And 41% of the respondents indicated that they were doing some level of data integration between clouds. And that could be between public and private, which I think is a lot of the case, or public to public. But what was interesting to me was there was also just over a third of people that were doing more sophisticated architectures, such as workload mobility between clouds or failover between clouds or individual applications going across public and private cloud. And I think that's really being enabled by some of the new technologies and options. So certainly containers is one place that gives us that option to provide that mobility. We also have things like VMware Cloud on AWS. So that gives you that option. Many people are already VMware users, on-prem. Many of them are also using public cloud. So they have technologies that allow you to do that mobility or failover or bursting mode as well. So we're actually starting to see some of these more advanced architectures come to fruition, whereas, you know, five years ago, that wasn't the case.
0: Right. Understood. Are you seeing any short-term challenges? Obviously, there's some macroeconomic challenges with cloud, but I want to take a pandemic lens for a second. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You know, not to talk about something we're all tired of talking about, but, you know, in the interest of knowledge sharing and thought leadership here, I'm curious if you're seeing any short-term challenges in the marketplace currently.
1: You know, it was interesting because we were in the middle of fielding this survey when, you know, the pandemic happened. We started fielding it in February and it continued into March. And so as the pandemic rose, we were able to add a question to ask people what is happening to their cloud plans due to COVID. So it was early COVID days, but it was kind of as we were going through all the shutdowns and a lot of industries were getting hit very heavily. And so about 187 of our respondents were able to answer this question. And out of those in the enterprise segment, 59% expected their cloud use to be higher due to COVID. So based on what they had planned versus now what they expected, 59% had said higher, 11% said lower, and then the rest would be no change. And within the higher group, 30% said significantly higher, while 29% said somewhat higher, slightly higher. So since then, we've had a chance to kind of dig into that a little more anecdotally with the customers that we talk to and prospects that we talk to. And so what we're seeing is that certainly within some industries, their usage of cloud is falling off just because their industry is getting so hammered. You know, we have customers that are cruise lines, hotel chains, right? So these are companies that their business is down. And if you're now doing, you know, online booking for your cruise or your hotel, that's gone away almost or down. And so they don't have that same level of need for those industries. On the growth side, the people that are seeing it grow, we're seeing that happen in two ways. One is I have applications or workloads, I'm already running in the cloud, and those workloads are getting more demands. I'm doing e-commerce and people are buying online. I'm doing ordering for restaurants and people are buying online. I'm a software company that does SaaS and now my usage is through the roof because I do collaboration on the web or conferencing. The second dynamic we're seeing is companies that were on a path and a journey to migrate to the cloud and the pandemic is making them accelerate those plans. So that's happening typically for a couple of reasons. One is the public cloud has held up pretty darn well during the pandemic. We certainly had a few stories early on when everybody jumped on Teams and Zoom and there was some slowdowns, but those got fixed relatively quickly. People were able to scale up those applications based on the access to public cloud. We saw, for example, Zoom was running a lot in AWS, but they announced a big new deal from Oracle cloud infrastructure because probably they wanted to gain access to a bunch of new infrastructure to meet demand. So what we saw is that cloud held up pretty well. In addition, there became challenges for people doing on-prem in the supply chain and getting hardware. There became challenges, for example, Flexera still had some applications running in colo facilities that we've since moved into AWS, for example. But we were not able to send our employees into the colo facilities anymore. So anything that needed to be updated or any third-party vendors we couldn't send in, So suddenly, we had to do everything through the employees of the colo facility. And the business continuity risk got really big. And so suddenly, people that were on a path said, let's move faster down that path. Let's move those applications or at least certain applications more quickly than we had planned. And so they're accelerating their cloud migrations.
0: Excellent overview there. I learned quite a few tidbits in the last couple of minutes of you just explaining that. My natural inclination is, as you see the utilization of public and private, but specifically public cloud, increase drastically, both on short-term and long-term kind of macroeconomic effects and reasons, how are they doing on spend management? Obviously, that's a focus area of ours, and I just was curious how you're seeing the corporate budget essentially absorb these increased costs.
1: Yeah, I'd say in general, people are not doing very well. (laughs) And everybody feels this way, so I shouldn't be making anybody feel bad about this. Look, what's happening is budgets for people migrating to cloud are growing quickly. So overall, if you look at the market as a whole, and you look at what Gartner IDC will say, they'll tell you that IaaS is growing kind of in the 30-ish percent range, maybe 30 to 35% range. Mm -hmm. In our survey, and our survey is targeting people already using cloud, they're expecting growth of 47% in their cloud spend in the next 12 months. The worst part is like in the last year, they've been over budget by 23%. So for many people, and we actually experienced this at Flexera ourselves, it's the fastest growing line item in their IT budget. And they're not on budget, they're over by a lot. So what happens is that starts to get the attention of the CIO and the CFO and the IT finance team, because they're like, hey, maybe we're still spending more with other vendors in some cases. There are a number of companies in our tech spend survey that AWS is their largest vendor, but Microsoft is often the largest vendor, and that includes cloud spend. So there may be stuff where they're spending more, but when they see the growth rate of this and they realize, hey, if we don't get this under control, this is going to explode out of control. The other kind of bad news is that we ask each year how much waste there is. And like every other year, their self-estimated wasted spend is about 30%. We find in engagements with our customers, it's often a little bigger, like around 35%. But even the 30% number that starts to be a big number. And we are starting to get people that now their cloud spend is millions of dollars a month. Mm-hmm. And the good news is, if you save money, you realize the savings starting that minute, starting that hour it's in silly. your next cloud bill, right? you yeah. don't have to wait for a renegotiation or a contract renewal like we do in software or SaaS, you can save money right away. So the good news is while there's waste and there's growth and it's a bit out of control, there's opportunity. So for now the, I think it's fourth year running saving money and optimizing existing cloud usage and cloud costs is the number one initiative in cloud, followed closely by migrating more workloads to cloud. <laughs> so these go hand in hand, as we know, we're going to move more. So 73% say they need to optimize existing use of cloud and get cost savings. 61% are migrating more workloads to cloud. The third initiative, expanding use of containers. 51%. So that's where people are going. Save money and become more efficient with what I'm doing because I'm moving more there and it's growing, leverage container more. And by the way, moving to containers can also be a cost savings mechanism because it allows for more efficient use of infrastructure.
0: Are there any quick wins that you could suggest to CIOs? Maybe perhaps that Flexera has pushed as far as when you talk about the waste is an obvious issue. Maybe speak a little bit more about. What is the waste? Is it over-allocation of cloud storage versus demand? As the listeners are listening, I just want to point them to what's the first thing they should look at to even identify whether they have waste or not?
1: Yeah, there's probably, let's say, about four big areas. Number one is typically right-sizing. So as people move to the cloud, their natural tendency is, let's look what I'm using on-prem. Let's see how much compute, storage, bandwidth, And let me provision the cloud the same amount. And maybe I even over-provision because I'm not as confident in what the performance is of what I'm buying. So they do an apples to apples. And the problem with apples to apples is number one, almost everything on-prem is over-provisioned and can't take advantage of things like auto-scaling. And because we didn't have an incentive to save money because we weren't paying a monthly bill. So it's over provisioned. So you go and you over-provision in the cloud. And if you over-provision it in the cloud and do that apples to apples and you run it 24-7, I guarantee you, you will not save any money. You will pay more money. Mm -hmm. So you have to right-size as you move. You have to look at utilization on-prem and then make the appropriate decisions. Um, We use in our cloud migration uh, tooling and customers, we work with customers on that all the time, then you can save money. Second, idle stuff. So stuff that you spun up was used at some point, and now is underutilized or not utilized. That's storage, and it's also compute resources. So typically, one of the first low hanging fruit is finding storage that was being used for some VM or instance in the cloud that got shut down, storage wasn't deprovisioned, and is no longer being used, and you're still paying for it. That can be literally a quick win within the first 30 days. So idle or underutilized. Third is scheduling. Are you running things 24-7 that don't need to be running 24-7? So that could be development workloads or other things that are temporary that need to get shut down. That could also be, hey, we need to auto-scale up and down instead of running to max capacity all day long. If I do e-commerce and certain people are buying at certain times of day, am I taking advantage of that scalability? And then the fourth area is discounting. So this is an important one to talk about in the survey. So People are starting to use more of the discounting mechanisms from the cloud providers. So generally, we have negotiated discounts of some sort, and then we have commitment-level discounts of some sort. So negotiated discounts would include our Azure EA, that's part of our Microsoft EA, It would include our AWS EDP program. Commitment discounts would include things like reserved instances on Azure or AWS. It would include savings plans on AWS or committed use discounts on Google. So here's what's happening is people are coming in with their historical mindset of how I bought on-prem, which was generally I bought up front, right? If I'm going to buy a put up a data center, I provision more in that data center than I'm going to need because I need to be ready for growth. If I'm buying software, I might buy for my peak or my max in a three-year or five-year contract. If I'm buying SaaS, I might do the same thing, buy to that peak. And so people come in with that mindset and they see the discount levels associated with, oh, if I commit to higher levels, how much I get in savings totally the wrong thing to do in cloud. Please, please don't do that.
0: Saving money before I spent it. That's always a great idea.
1: (laughs) Saving money that I didn't need to spend. My favorite story of this was a company that shall remain nameless, that technology company actually was going to be moving a workload or set of workloads into the cloud. And so their approach was to Because they thought, oh, like setting up a data center. Let me buy reserved instances on that cloud provider for like what I'm going to be using a year from now. And then you start locking those reserved instances into certain regions, which you may want to change or into certain instance types, which you may need to change. And they had like a million dollar or $2 million commitment. I don't remember the exact number before they had a single workload running in the cloud. Please don't do that. Anybody listening to this. (laughs) So luckily they were a big enough company. They were able to offload those reserved instances to another business unit. (laughs) We said, let's take a different approach. So here's what's going to happen. Everybody's going to be looking at saving money and you're going to get showing up on your doorstep. All of your cloud provider sales reps telling you how much they can save you by using discounting. And that's important, but think about your commitments carefully here because Think about what happened to certain industries in this pandemic. Suddenly, their usage fell, right? Some went way up, some came way down. So if you're stuck into these commitments, you're not going to realize any savings. And those cloud providers are not going to give you back that money. They're not very flexible on that, I can tell you that. (laughs) So you really need to think carefully in your commitments about, number one, Optimize first. So I'm not committing to that idle compute or that idle storage. Why would you continue to use something you're not using? So optimize first, or at least understand how much you can optimize. And then make your commitment at the right level based on optimized usage and based on future plans. How might I change usage? How might I move to a different cloud provider? We had a fun one, somebody that was on AWS, had a bunch of reserved instances, decided they were going to move to Google, basically are still paying money to AWS for workloads they've moved. So think through that. How are my regions going to change? How are my instance types? What flexibility do I need in those? And then make your commitment. So yes, commitments are good and the discounts are good, but don't get too caught up in whatever your sales rep's going to sell you. And by the way, those sales reps make money and that's often one of the best ways they make money is by selling you those commitments, selling those commitments in.
0: Mm-hmm. Pressure test your roadmap with multiple individuals. Yeah? <laughs> awesome action steps that I know the listeners will take action on in their own companies immediately. That's awesome, Kim. Thank you for that. I want to shift to our two standard questions in our podcast. But before I do that, did we miss any major points you wanted to get across from the report this year?
1: No, I think you hit on the main targets there. And obviously anybody can go download the report on our website and get all of the data there.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. If you could speak to yourself, and I think I asked you this last year as well, and I'm not sure if it's changed or not, but if you could speak to yourself at the beginning of your career what advice would you give yourself? And again, just as a reminder, why we ask this is because through feedback, we have a lot of listeners that are actually at the beginning of their career that are listening to the podcast with the intent of hearing from senior leaders in a very authentic way. So if you don't mind sharing, uh, perhaps anything comes
1: yeah, to mind. I think what I found is serendipity is your friend. I meet a lot of very talented and ambitious people that are earlier in their career, and they have like a really good plan. And I can't say that I had much of a plan when I started. But I think if you find something you're interested in, or even if you're doing maybe not your ideal job, if you can find a way to dig into it and get interested in work hard, do a good job, go above and beyond, opportunities will arise. I started out On the engineering side of things, I had an opportunity arise to move into product management. You know, I was in product management. I had an opportunity to broaden into product marketing, then to move over and take on CMO type of roles. And none of those were exactly my plan, (laughs) but by working hard and doing well at what you do today and showing interest beyond your narrow scope, people come to you with opportunities.
0: Right. Yeah. You build those diverse perspectives, even though it wasn't necessarily part of your plan. Exactly. Yeah. That's really sound advice. Next question. By popular demand, (laughs) (laughs) tell me your best worst boss story. (laughs) So tell me a time that was very memorable for you that you perhaps learned what not to do as a manager of your own team. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, luckily I've had a lot of good bosses, but yeah. the worst one was literally kind of the first one in my career right out of college actually. So this is in the mid 80s, so dating myself, but it's important to have the time frame. I was an electrical engineer in school and I had a job for a company that did computer stuff and I was in a department of 30 people that was both hardware and software engineers. And I was on the hardware side. And there were two women in the department. I was hardware, she was software, and 28 men in our department. And our common boss of this department, who was married, showed up at her house to kind of proposition her... I'm like, like, are you going into like the HR records to find your house? And you're just like showing up uninvited and unannounced. So never do that. It's (laughs) super creepy. (laughs) (laughs) And I left soon after to go to grad school. I don't know that he even got any punishment at the time. I don't know how much she said to other people. So I'm not sure of the outcome of that, but please don't ever do that. I think hopefully now in 2020, we're all more aware, but that literally (laughs) happened.
0: He was a poster child of why HR policies were invented around this.
1: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Don't be the person that causes new HR policies. <laughs>
0: Good guidance right there. That's a tagline for the episode. <laughs> yeah. Don't become a person that creates an HR policy. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Uh, well, I uh, definitely won't be doing that. No, no, no none of our listeners will either. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that, Kim. Yeah, this has been a wonderful conversation. Any final thoughts you want to share with the audience before we wrap it up for today?
1: Yeah, please go check that out. Also, our state of tech spend report is an interesting one because we asked people about trends and spend. We did do that pre-pandemic, but we're going to be fielding a new state of tech spend here coming up in the next couple of months. And so probably by October, we're going to have a really good view of how pandemic is changing IT spending trends. So that's going to be very, very interesting to see the data out of that.
0: Definitely. Yeah. And if people wanted to get in touch with you personally, Kim, is there a best way for them to do that?
1: Yeah. LinkedIn is fine. So Kim Wines on LinkedIn and you can reach out that way or wines W-E-I-N-S at flexera.com.
0: Outstanding. Thanks for your time today, Kim. I know our listeners got a ton of actionable content out of this one. So thanks again.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Everybody, if you enjoyed today's episode, feel free to leave us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. So we'll talk to you later. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you got value from today's conversation, please share this podcast with one person you think who would enjoy it. For show notes, episodes, and more, please visit thenegotiator.guru. Look forward to hearing from everyone soon. Thanks, and we'll talk to you soon.